said, well, I've got two pianos that are available right now. Three are already gone. And I, and I thought, this is a dealer. I've called like a piano dealer. And it says by owner. And then what I found out was this guy just really likes pianos. So he's, he said he was a piano tuner and he worked in the industry and he's retired. And as a hobby, he travels, he said, hundreds of miles to find these pianos and fixes them up and then sells them. I mean, he's like flipping pianos. You know, they flip houses, he's flipping pianos. But at the prices, there's no way he makes a lot of money because if he drives 100 miles to get a piano, he's spent so much gas and hauling it. And um, he just said, it's a hobby. I, I love doing it. And it really appealed to me because um, there's something about seeing something old and broken and nursing it back to life. It's, it's about seeing the potential that's in the thing. I know some of you have restored cars or or boats or houses or whatever, and you kind of, you look at it, fall and run down, and you get a picture of what could be. And there's hope there, and there's, uh, it, it inspires you to want to work towards that. Now, this morning, I want to talk about restoration a bit. We're in this Advent series, and we're preaching through uh, what we're titling Hark the Herald, and that means listen to the messenger. And what this book contains is good news for everyday life. It can't just be sermon topics for when you're in church. It has to be stuff that affects how we live the seven days of the week, the other six days of the week. And so I want to talk this morning about restoration and the idea of the Spirit anointing for restoration and building up what was broken and fixing what is hurt. And it's a powerful image and something that is hopefully really helpful for us. We're, we're listening to these good news messages in the first week of Advent, we talked about how God is our Father and how the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts that we are His sons and daughters. And then last week, Dan talked to us about God, the Son of God, as the shepherd with a strong arm and a compassionate arm. He loves us and He's strong enough to save us. And this week, we're going to look at the power of the Holy Spirit to anoint, to restore, and fix things. So stay in your Bible at Isaiah 61, but you're going to have to go to another place in there. You're going to also have to get to Luke 4. I know it'll take you a second to get there. This is, a, this is like a Bible test. Can you find Isaiah 61 and Luke 4 for this um, sermon? You got it. Sam Bragg's got it. Give him a gold star. Tell, what page is it? Oh, he's in his own, he's own, in his own Bible. Give him two gold stars today. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time, Sam. All right, as you get there to Luke 4, understand what's going on in the context. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit has come upon him. The heavens opened, the Spirit came down, he was anointed for ministry, and the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. And it says in Luke 4 that when he returned, he returned in the power of the Spirit, and he went around from village to village proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing, casting out demons, doing amazing stuff. And then he enters his hometown of Nazareth. And like a good Jew would do, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he gets the scroll. They give him the honor of reading the scroll for that day. So he takes the scroll, and he goes to Isaiah 61, and then he reads only one and a half verses of that passage that Dan just read for us. And it's recorded here. And in this passage, Jesus proclaims things that he says are fulfilled in your presence. Five things are listed right here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor. So this Messiah, that's what anointed means. Messiah, the Christ, is the anointed one. This servant of God 
is anointed to go and proclaim these things. And it was so profound that when Jesus said it, this has been fulfilled in your day. That, that knocked all of his audience back. What is he saying? This has been fulfilled. You and I are still living in the, the day of the Lord's favor. I know it's gone on for 2,000 years, but we're in that moment. Has been fulfilled is what Jesus said. It's, it's already done. Not that those things are accomplished, but the proclaiming of them. So with Jesus' ministry, he said, all of these things are, are taking place. This is what's upon us. And when he comes to that last bit about proclaiming the, the year of the Lord's favor, anybody who knew their Old Testament would have instantly made the connection to Leviticus 25, which talks about the year of Jubilee. You don't have to turn there. Two, two passages is enough for you for one Sunday. I don't want to overdo you, but I'm going to read you something from Leviticus 25. In Leviticus 25, Moses, the Lord speaking through Moses says this to the Israelites going into the promised land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you return to his clan. See, God wanted to restore the fortunes that get messed up in an agrarian culture. They each had a tribe. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and depending on their family line and which of the sons of Jacob, who's also called Israel, they descended through, they had a specific plot of land. But, you know, with the way that the rains fall and droughts come and all this sort of stuff, sometimes people fall into poverty and end up having to sell their land. But God set it up so that you could never permanently sell your land. You could essentially lease it. In fact, he even specifies how those leases would work. For instance, if you know the year of Jubilee is about to come in, let's say, three years, and you've got to lease your land out, you do it at a prorated price, knowing that in three years, they're off your land and you're farming it again, because God would restore and reset everything every 50 years. That's how this idea of Jubilee worked. God cares about restoring things that fall apart. So this morning, we see a passage here about the anointing upon Jesus to inaugurate this and proclaim it. Now, those three things that, there are several things in here, but three, the first three that I want to talk about are that idea of good news to the poor, the liberty to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind. Imagine with me for a moment a community of people where, just like on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, there's an island of misfit toys. They don't have a sense of belonging. They don't quite fit in for some reason. Imagine a community where people, because they are misfit, belong. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Two weeks ago, I told you that the Holy Spirit in our hearts says to us, you are sons and daughters of God. He is your Abba Father. You have a place of belonging. Now imagine what that's like to come into a place where you fit because you're poor in spirit, because you're broken. That's the Christian community. Now imagine also that people who come no longer have the power over them that sin is. It's been broken and instantly the shame is taken away. So when people come and say, I'm really broken in this area, shame is gone, and other people all go, I know what it's like to be broken. I may not know what your particular struggle is like, but I know what it's like to be a broken person who's experienced grace. How radical that is. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And then imagine a community where people have come out of the darkness and into light, and now they can discern truly what is good from bad, what is dark and light, what is right from wrong. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians about this idea of light. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you see, the work of Satan, who's the lowercase g, God of this world, the enemy of our souls, his work is to keep those who don't know Christ from seeing him. There is a veil over their eyes. They are blinded. And if you are a Christian, you know exactly what that's like because you've come out of the darkness and into the light. The veil has been removed, and for the first time in your life, the gospel made sense. So imagine this, a community where people who are broken belong, where the power of sin is being taken away, there's no shame, and you can see goodness from evil. That's the church in the world. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, that's the picture of the community that is the church. And if you belong to that, you experience something that you can't find anywhere else in this world. Truly, indeed, the year of the Lord's Lord's favor has come upon you. We are living in those times. And I could tell you story after story after story of people who are having this experience in this particular church, one of those three or all three of those things playing out. In fact, this morning at the early service at 745, someone said on the way out, after years of prayer, my son has become a Christian. He didn't know the Lord and his marriage was in a difficult spot. His wife was a believer. He wasn't. We've been praying for him for like 30 years. He became a Christian. That's the year of the Lord's favor. The Spirit came upon him. The, the veil was removed, and he saw, whoa, I can actually be forgiven of my sins. It's an amazing thing. So we're talking about the anointing of the Spirit, and the Spirit does many things. I mean, it's a, it's a much lengthier topic than I can cover today about all the work, the person of who the Spirit is, and and the work that he does. But it is interesting to note that he is a person, the third person of the Trinity. One of the things about the Greek language that's helpful is that nouns have gender. If you've studied French or Spanish or whatever, you know, a chair is either masculine or feminine or neuter, meaning it's in between. And the, the word spirit, it's a neuter word. But whenever they use it in the Greek for the Holy Spirit, they then use the pronoun he with it instead of it. So they're grammatically incorrect, but they're theologically correct that he, the Holy Spirit, is a person at work. And because the Son went back to the Father, he sent what he said is another paraclete. That's the word that's translated helper or advocate or counselor or comforter. I don't like the word comforter for the Holy Spirit because it sounds like he's a blanket that's keeping us warm. But paraclete literally means the one called alongside of. And you could use it as almost like a, a legal counselor, a, a lawyer helping you. And, and it's, it says in the scriptures that both Jesus is a paraclete who intercedes before the Father for us, and the Spirit also does. And for years, I thought of that as, you know, God, Jesus goes up to God the Father and, and says, oh, have mercy on Mike. For the 29th time, he stumbled over that thing. One more time, Father, have mercy. And I thought it was like, He's, he's begging God to be merciful to me. And, and I thought maybe the 28th time the father goes, that's it, I'm cutting him off, no more. But it's not like that. The, this legal metaphor and this understanding of God's justice is at play here, where the advocate, the paraclete, comes before the throne of God and he says, Father, you love justice. You understand right and wrong and you are a just judge. And Mike deserves wrath but I've paid it on this cross. So here, look at my hands, look at my side, here is my blood, my payment for him. And he stands there between each one of us and a holy God, interceding for us as our advocate. 
And so we are righteous in Christ, and the shame is taken away. And then God goes into a process of restoring and building up what was broken, and he gives us his spirit to empower us. So we become poor in spirit when we recognize our need. We receive the spirit who breaks the power of sin and empowers us to live a different way, and then we can now see the light through the darkness. And it's an amazing picture. And, and Jesus stops here. Why do you think he stops halfway through that verse? If you're in Luke, he, he, he goes right down, or actually, excuse me, go to Isaiah. He goes right down in Isaiah, and he stops halfway through verse 2. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. He doesn't say the day of vengeance of our God. But there's two reasons, I believe, why he doesn't. The first is that he was about to experience the day of vengeance of our God for us on the cross. And the second one was that when he returns in glory the second time, he is going to be a day of vengeance where he will say, I am the Lord, and all will see him. And it will not be in obscurity. Everyone will see the day when he comes. And those who are right now considered foolish in this world, because we believe in the, the gospel, um, will be seen to be the truly wise ones. It will be a day of vindication. It will be a, a great and awesome day. That day is coming. But Jesus paused right there, the year of the Lord's favor, continues his ministry, goes to the cross and takes the vengeance and points to a day in the future. Now, when these prophets were writing, they couldn't quite see the, the timeline from their vantage point. They, the scholars call it prof prophetic foreshortening. I liken it to driving across the plains and then the, the Rocky Mountains are there. I've given you this illustration before. From a distance, it looks like one mountain and you're just going to drive over it and then you're out on the California plain. But then you get into it, and it's hundreds of miles across these, this, this wide span of mountains. From Isaiah's vantage point, it looks like cross and Jesus' return right there. And then you turn sideways, and it's like cross, 2,000 years and counting of waiting and patience. And here we are. It's another advent, and we're still re rehearsing the old story, waiting for God to break in. Christ, when are you coming? Come back. Restore it. Come back. Advent is about waiting, an expectant waiting. And here we are in that place. And what can happen to a person, a Christian person, is you can get tired of waiting. You can get tired of struggling with the same sin, and you give up on it. And you give up on it. Now look at where it goes, though, after that, to comfort all who mourn. What are we mourning? We're mourning the loss of the way things are supposed to work. We're mourning the sin that constantly plagues us. We will be comforted to grant to those who mourn in Zion, which is a way of saying God's people, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. What a difference that is. Instead of pouring ashes on my head, to have a beautiful headdress, like a bride with her jewels and a bridegroom, all in a tuxedo and the dress, and they're ready, and it's an exciting, it's a festive thing, and it's a big party. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And then here's God's work. He plants us as oaks of righteousness, I've been calling Bob Simpson an oak of righteousness all week from this passage just because he's such a solid guy. God has established our roots. Think how hard it is to push an oak over. It's very difficult to rip that root structure up. We are oaks of righteousness in Christ's righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Now, I'm coming to an end here, and look at what our work is in verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Our work while we're waiting can be witnessing 
to Christ and pointing people to him that these things would be restored. We are at work building this. God is working through us. That's the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon us. And when Jesus first started talking about the Holy Spirit, they said, when are you going to do it? Are you at this time, Lord, going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They ask him that literally right before he ascends into heaven. And he says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. We are living in those days. Our God is a God of restoration who takes what's broken and fixes it. And there's something even more glorious about something that was broken being restored than just buying a brand new one. You know, car companies now are into making sort of reissued looking cars. There's all these muscle cars out there on the roads now that look like the old cars from the 60s. It's so different when you see an actual 1960-something Ford Mustang come down the road that's in pristine condition because it's been restored. There's the love of an owner. The touch of the owner is on it. Very different than another factory line car coming out that's just a run-of-the-mill muscle car or whatever it is. But God is restoring us, and there's something even more beautiful about it because he took what was broken and fixed it. We're in the process of being made into holy ones. And what he says is, since you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. It's from Colossians 3. So may it be so for us. Let us together pray. Oh Lord, I thank you so much for the hope that is contained in the scriptures. I thank you that you are at work in each one of us. Come Holy Spirit, fill us afresh. Fix it, Lord. Help us to witness to your work. I pray for your church, this one and all the churches in your world. I pray especially for these churches right here on Highway 17, that you would bless the work of all of our hands as we try to be that community that we so desperately long to be part of. Help us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.